This is the Capital Literature Podcast, bringing you investment letters and audio. The Capital Literature Podcast is a SEBITS capital service for the investment community. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All rights belong to the respective owners. Totally More Investment Partners, 4th Quarter, 2021 Part 1. Dear Partners. $1 invested in Tolimore at inception was worth $3.35 on December 31, 2021, before fees paid to Tolimore. Over the same period $1 invested in the MSCI All Country World Index would have generated a return of $1.09. Around three-quarters of this benchmark outperformance would have accrued to partners invested at inception. Tolimore has generated returns of 21% per annum net of all fees and expenses, versus 14% for the MSCI equity. A letter to partners, June 2017, an introduction. Dear partners, on May 12, 2016 I began managing your capital in separate accounts. The aim of this letter is to communicate the performance of that capital one year later, and to explain the investment philosophy and process that has delivered it, and that which I expect to produce satisfactory investment results long into the future. Later in the letter I outline my objective to launch a money management business, and expand upon the investment proposition for potential investors who may wish to partner with me in establishing such a venture. Philosophy One of the cornerstones of my investment philosophy is a belief in the advantage that a long-term mindset affords to patient investors with patient capital. While the informational source of edge for professional investors has decreased over time, the shortening of security holding periods has increased the advantage of time arbitrage for long-term investors. Compound interest, according to Einstein, is the eighth wonder of the world. As a long-term investor my efforts are focused on finding companies capable of increasing their intrinsic values through their own efforts. This compounding of value creation takes time, and the compounding can be lumpy, but it can lead to pretty astonishing long-term results. However, to maximize the intrinsic value of a portfolio of equities over the long term it isn't sufficient to identify these long-term compounders, but to employ a strict price discipline, which will involve saying no to many, many investment opportunities along the way. In assessing business quality, I distinguish legacy moats from reinvestment moats. Legacy moats are those businesses with sustainable competitive advantages but limited opportunities to allocate capital to high returns projects. Reinvestment moats are businesses which generate supernormal profits and have high reinvestment opportunities. The distinction is important because it affects how one should think about optimal capital allocation. It also informs an investor's willingness to pay for a business as a multiple of normal earnings power. Efforts are focused on estimating the returns that can be earned on existing and future capital, and the reinvestment rate of the business. The keys to successful reinvestment mode investing are a long-term horizon, being right about incremental returns, and being right about reinvestment opportunities. If both reinvestment rates and incremental returns are high, over the long term the entry multiple will pay an increasingly small role in determining the IRR of an equity investment. Of course, we may be wrong about returns and reinvestment rates, so we also want a purchase price that is low relative to current earnings. One of the consequences of this long-term focus is that catalysts are not a prerequisite to investing. The timing of the market's recognition of the true intrinsic value of a business is not predictable. The key is therefore to only invest when there is a very large gap between the market price and a conservative estimate of private business value. If the prospects for a particular business warrant a price that is double the market quotation, then even if the market takes 5 years to reflect this, we would still earn a very satisfactory aggregate return of 15% per year. 
It is also not sufficient to target investments that can generate high annual returns over the long term, this would reflect an impudent focus on the upside only. I want to invest in the equity of companies for which the odds of permanent capital loss are low. Efforts are therefore focused on finding companies for which the risk of structural intrinsic value impairment is low, whose capital structure is conservative and appropriate for the business model, and for which the risk of a material derating of the company's multiple of earnings power is low. So the hurdle is high. I want exceptional business quality. I want exceptional reinvestment opportunities. I want exceptional management, properly aligned with business owners. And I want all this for a price that will produce a very high probability of an acceptable annual investment return over the long term, with minimal risk of permanent capital loss. Despite a global opportunity set, there will be a very small number of stocks which satisfy these high demands. And when they can be found with conviction, it makes sense to put meaningful capital to work. This means that portfolios are concentrated, by this I mean 10 to 15 holdings. Diversification can be, in my view, an overused and poorly considered method to lower risk, rather it makes mediocre investment returns considerably more likely. Excessive and inadequately resourced diversification can prohibit the ability to carry out the due diligence required to think like business owners, and to know how to act when the quoted market price changes. Concentrated portfolios may be more volatile than the market, but short-term performance is irrelevant in the long-term accumulation of wealth. The core tenets of this investment philosophy are not unique. But this is a hugely competitive industry, so what is the edge that will generate superior long-term investment results? It is behavioral. It is the ability to act in a way that is faithful to the tenets of the investment philosophy described above. I believe behavioral edge is the most obvious opportunity to make better decisions and earn better returns over the long term. Behavioral edge is about creating a culture and environment that create the best chance of making optimal decisions. Optimal decisions are those that allow us to satisfy our goals of creating, rather than transferring, value, and of solving our investors' problems. It is predicated on a belief that we can tip the odds in our favor by repeatedly making good choices day in, day out. Process So the cornerstones of my investment philosophy are thinking long-term, maximizing the intrinsic value of a concentrated portfolio, and downside risk mitigation. I have developed an investment process that I believe will give me the best chance to staying faithful to this investment philosophy. A process governs the decisions we make day to day. These decisions can relate to how we organize our time, where we focus our research, portfolio management, operational and marketing efforts. We make so many decisions every day that creating an investment process that gives us a better chance of making sound decisions can cumulatively add up to substantially influence our prospects for success. There are several aspects to my investment process discussed below. Idea generation. Ideas are not generated according to a systematic magic formula. Ideas are typically found by reading investment journals, company filings, transcripts, fund manager letters and industry reports, attending investment conferences and having conversations with like-minded investors. There is a healthy dose of serendipity involved. This works well if it is accompanied by passion, high personal energy, and competence. I also use some basic screens to potentially identify high-quality businesses facing short-term, but surmountable, problems, but whose attractive long-term prospects are intact. Due diligence, my goal is to identify easy-to-understand, high-quality companies, run by honest and competent management, and buy those companies when they are trading at significant discounts to conservative appraisals of intrinsic value. In order to do that I will spend time considering and appraising the business model, business and management quality, and forming a view of the potential long-term returns that could be enjoyed at current prices. The research process is bottom-up, one company at a time. I will study factual information relating to the company, 
its industry and its management in order to form an opinion on business simplicity, capital structure, growth prospects, competitive advantage and stewardship. Valuation work will typically involve estimating the long-term, through cycle owner earnings potential of the business, the opportunity to profitably reinvest those earnings, and the capital allocation decisions management is likely to make. I am trying to find stocks which can compound at 15-20% sustainably with limited risk of permanent capital loss. The due diligence process also involves the use of fundamental and behavioral checklists. These are designed to lower the risks of behavioral shortcuts leading to investment errors. Research is documented, filed and updated to retain intellectual honesty. Portfolio management. The portfolio is concentrated, typically holding 10 to 15 securities. If I successfully identify companies that can increase their own intrinsic values over the long term, holding periods will be many years. There are only three reasons to sell a stock. One, the price no longer offers an adequate margin of safety, the stock appreciates or intrinsic value declines. Two, there is a more lucrative investment opportunity. Three, we have made an investment error. The goal of avoiding permanent capital loss is facilitated by avoiding leverage, employing a long-only strategy, investing in high-quality businesses run by talented and appropriately incentivized management, only investing in businesses I understand, and patiently waiting for unduly distressed prices. Environment If we are going to make good decisions consistently, we need a physical working environment that is conducive to independent thinking. We want to avoid devoting brain power to battling distraction. Having space and time to work alone, actively disconnecting from always-on devices and social media, closing Outlook and Bloomberg, and clearing schedules are useful tools to help cultivate a focused work practice, and uncover the truth by enabling independent thought. Hedging, the portfolio is not hedged for currency exposure. There are several reasons why an unhedged portfolio is consistent with the investment strategy. FX is not a real asset. It has no intrinsic value and therefore cannot increase or decrease its value over time. Investing in currencies is therefore not consistent with the stated investment program. I have no ability to intelligently predict currency movements. There is a cost that will reduce long-term performance. Over the long-term currencies have had little impact on the return of real assets. Even the prolonged strengthening of the USD over the last 25 years would have added only one percentage point per year to a UK portfolio of US assets, ignoring the indirect effects on companies with global operations. It is a global portfolio with global companies. There are therefore indirect as well as direct consequences of currency movements. For example consider a UK portfolio holding a US company with a USD share price, exposed to foreign competition. USD strengthening will operationally harm this company by affecting its ability to compete with cheaper imports. And foreign sales of the US company are worth less in USD. Yet the translational impact on the USD security is positive. Hedging is a price to smooth returns. Maximizing returns is an objective, smoothing returns is not. Investors can hedge their individual exposure to their holdings if they wish. Investment case study. The largest holding in the portfolio is TripAdvisor Incorporated. TripAdvisor is also by a distance the worst performing investment over the last 12 months, declining by 25% since I initially acquired shares for $61 in September 2016. Prior to acquiring shares, the stock had fallen by 40% over the previous two years due to a business model augmentation that, in my view, is temporarily depressing profits but improving the long-term prospects for the business. Since the initial purchase of shares the company has reported two sets of quarterly earnings which disappointed analysts' short-term forecasts, causing share price declines of circa 20% on both occasions. I acquired more shares each time, lowering the average purchase price to under $50, 
a price which I believe considerably undervalues this exceptional reinvestment moat business. TripAdvisor is the largest travel research company in the world. Its 500 million reviews and 390 million unique monthly visitors are significantly higher than online travel agent, OTA, and travel research peers. It generates revenue through targeting advertising sales to OTAs and other travel providers. Revenues are driven by the number of monthly hotel shoppers, conversion rates, and price per click. Despite TripAdvisor's material influence in travel commerce, the company earns revenue on only half of its visitors. Monetization of its customer base is impaired by travelers conducting research on the TripAdvisor website or app but then clicking off to complete their booking elsewhere. OTAs make 6-7x revenue per visitor versus TripAdvisor. To stem this economic leakage TripAdvisor has rolled out a feature called Instant Book. This feature allows users to complete their travel booking directly on the TripAdvisor website or app. Instant Book positions TripAdvisor as the most compelling one-stop shop travelers can use to research, plan, price compare and book trips. TripAdvisor is also increasingly a compelling and destination travel companion, offering the ability to research and book attractions and restaurants. There is evidence of the presence of a strong moat. Average returns on capital over the last eight years of reported financials have been 30%. Even over the last couple of years TripAdvisor has out-earned its cost of capital despite the significant investments the company is making in transitioning the business model to be better positioned to take a slice of the global bookings pie. Amazon pulled the plug on its hotel booking service after just six months in 2015, perhaps testimony to the scale of entry barriers, even for an operator with a huge global user base and trusted brand. Entry barriers emanate from several factors, a globally recognized and trusted brand, one-sided network effects, more reviews equals more users equals more reviews, and two-sided network effects, more travelers equals more travel suppliers equals more travelers. TripAdvisor is investing in widening its moat by investing in adjacencies such as attractions and restaurants. The CEO expects attractions to be TripAdvisor's next $1 billion revenue business, total revenues. $1.5 billion, attractions industry equals $80 billion in N America and Europe. So the moat seems strong. Are there substantial reinvestment opportunities? The addressable market is large and expanding. 40% of the $1.3 trillion global travel market growing at C5% PA, is generated online. TripAdvisor's market share of this is just $1.50 billion 0.3%. Of the $50 billion travel advertising market, one quarter is generated online. Therefore, TripAdvisor should benefit from the following trends. Expansion of the global travel industry. Online consuming a larger share of the global travel industry. Online travel advertising share, 25%. Catching up with online travel spend share, 40%. TripAdvisor generating revenues from travel bookings, $1.3 trillion market, as well as travel advertising, $50 billion market. Management is long-term focused. Steve Koffer, the CEO, has the capacity to suffer short-term in the pursuit of long-term shareholder wealth creation. He has led the company though a business model augmentation in the recent past, a transition he executed quickly and profitably. Management's focus on its strategic imperative has been unwavering as it seeks to better monetize the 40-50% to of global online hotel reservations the company influences. With much of the reported margin declines reflecting investment and revenue growth versus the servicing of current business activity, it could conceptually be capitalized. It could be argued that a business with very high maintenance operating margins and opportunities to reinvest capital into value-accretive projects should do so. Yet when that investment is reported as income statement expenses, therefore driving operating margin declines, 
it is poorly received by short-term investors. TripAdvisor's EBITDA margin in FY16 was 24%, and its ROIC was 21%. TripAdvisor adds back stock-based compensation to its EBITDA measure, removing this results in ROIC of 14%. This from a company heavily in investment mode. The business is soundly financed. Net cash held on the balance sheet is circa 10% of the market cap. The stock trades at 19x trailing FCF. While the market reacted impatiently to analysts' inability to successfully forecast the company's earnings, the business KPIs in my view are consistent with management's belief that IB will help to allow TripAdvisor to more adequately monetize the influence it currently generates in the global travel booking market, and that this influence is well protected by significant competitive advantages relating to the network and customer proximity TripAdvisor has built over time. Without assuming a re-rating of TripAdvisor's current FCF, I believe the intrinsic value of the business could exceed $30 billion over the next decade, with the risk of permanent capital loss mitigated by a strong balance sheet, enduring product utility and competitive advantages, and competent long-term oriented management. My objective. It is my sincerest hope to one day launch an investment partnership with partners for whom my investment philosophy and approach resonates with their own long-term wealth-maximizing objectives. There are two aspects to this goal. The first is to create value in an industry that in aggregate transfers value from investors to managers. The second is more selfish. It is to create a flexible lifestyle in which I can organize and prioritize my time in a way in which there is no distinction between work and play. In a way in which business and investment success are determined by productivity, relationships and personal energy, and serendipity. This flexible lifestyle, I hope, will allow me to commit unreservedly to the happiness of my family and the delight of my investment partners on a multi-decade basis. The Opportunity As mentioned, this investment strategy is not original. In fact, it is its decades-long efficacy, evidenced by the track records of a number of super-investors, and its suitability to my temperament, that toughens my conviction in its merit. If achieving a better long-term investment result requires a competitive advantage, frequently referred to in the industry as a source of edge, I believe it is behavioral. The cornerstones of this behavioral advantage are independent thought, epistemological humility, and patience. The ingredients required to be able to make decisions in accordance with these attributes are a long time horizon, the right environment, the right temperament, and the right investment partners. To someone without a broad overview of the institutional money management industry, it might seem like the adoption of these unoriginal principles is an easily copied recipe for success. However, I believe that there are major obstacles to achieving these qualities for the vast majority of asset managers, including short-termism, incentive structures, poor alignment and overconfidence. Alignment The core investment strategy is not flexible. I'm not trying to be all things to all people. The terms of a potential future venture, however, are flexible. The goal of achieving genuine alignment of interests between the investment manager and investment partners is, I hope, easily acceptable. The mechanisms to best achieve this are more nuanced. Here are some proposed features of an incentive structure that I would like to discuss with potential partners, operational costs that are recharged to the fund in full, profits delivered above a high water mark that are shared between the investor and the manager in a ratio of 4 to 1, and a minimum hurdle rate of 5%. The performance-based incentive structure is consistent with a returns rather than asset gathering objective. The hurdle is designed to avoid the undesirable outcome that the investment manager gets rich by delivering mid-single-digit returns to investors. A 5% hurdle would mean that the investment manager and the investor both profit from double-digit returns and the manager does poorly in the case of single-digit returns. Due to budget-based management fees that are recharged on an absolute basis rather than a percentage of assets, higher assets lower the expense ratio, 
At $50 million AUM the cost of operations would be a 20 to 25 basis points drag on performance. The commitment that the vast majority of my liquid capital will be invested alongside partners capital will provide the skin in the game that will help to facilitate optimal decision making in the pursuit of long-term capital compounding. The goal is returns, not assets. However, the ideal size depends on the investor base and the problem they need to solve. An AUM cap may at one extreme help to maximize returns, but may prohibit my ability to be a problem solver for larger investors. Most asset managers optimize for maximizing AUM rather than returns, resulting in value transfer rather than value creation. One further way to encourage long-duration capital might be to implement fee reductions the longer the assets are invested. Reasons not to invest I'm fanatical about partnering with compatible investors. I believe that the right investment partners are an important ingredient to sustaining a behavioral edge. I, very consciously, am not trying to create something to suit everyone. In an effort to discourage incompatible investment partners, here is a list of reasons why you should not consider becoming an investment partner in a potential future venture. You want smooth returns. You will need the capital short term. You cannot take at least a five-year view of performance. You believe the investment performance is the most important information in this letter. You believe the investment performance since inception is remotely sustainable. You would redeem your capital if the market had a 40-50% to 50% correction. You measure risk in terms of volatility. You believe there is a positive linear relationship between portfolio concentration and risk. I have had some wonderful conversations with potential future partners and am thoroughly enjoying this process, regardless of where it might lead. To everyone to whom I have spoken, thank you for your time, insights, and advice. I look forward to staying in touch and updating you on my journey. To those for whom I currently manage money, thank you for entrusting me with your capital. Yours sincerely. Mark. A Letter to Partners, December 2017, Execution Greater Than Philosophy Dear Partners On May 12, 2016 I began managing your capital in separate accounts. The aim of this letter is to communicate the performance of that capital and to explain the investment philosophy and process that delivered it, and that which I expect to produce satisfactory investment results long into the future. Philosophy, Why Quality Matters as a long-term investor my efforts are focused on finding companies capable of increasing their intrinsic values through their own efforts. Ideally, I am trying to identify high-quality businesses facing short-term, but surmountable, problems, but whose attractive long-term prospects are intact. And I am trying to buy them at times when the market's extrapolation of the business's near-term challenges into the future makes little sense in the context of the quality of the company and its management. In the short-term there can often be little correlation between price and value or stock success and business success. But over the long term this correlation is high, this disparity is the key to making money, but it can persist for long periods of time. Discipline and patience are required to exploit these price-slash-value discrepancies. As long-term investors we can exploit the time arbitrage afforded to patient investors with patient capital. While the informational source of edge for professional investors has decreased over time, the ongoing shortening of security holding periods has increased the advantage of time arbitrage for long-term investors. By focusing on quality companies, we can benefit from those companies' intrinsic value appreciation. In my experience alternative approaches that necessitate the prediction of sharp asset re-ratings, and the identification of catalysts that will cause these, are meaningfully more difficult to execute. By owning a portfolio of businesses steadily compounding the value of their economic earnings, we are tipping the odds of earning a satisfactory return on our equity ownership in our favor. Meanwhile we can exploit stock market volatility to manage the portfolio in a way that may augment this underlying business value compounding. 
The average difference between the 52-week high and the 52-week low stock price for U.S. large caps is 50%. This vastly overstates the likely difference in private business valuation from one year to the next. I expect the change in underlying per share value of portfolio holding companies to do most of the work for me in delivering acceptable annual investment results, but sensible and occasional portfolio management decisions should enhance these returns over the long term. Process, competitive advantage. So we are looking for businesses that can sustainably create value through their own efforts. This means finding companies that can earn economic profits in excess of the cost of the capital employed to generate those profits. We want companies that can do this sustainably. In the absence of lasting unfair advantages, the entry of new capital and intelligent effort will drive returns towards to the cost of capital. This capital cycle economic theory is academically and empirically broadly accepted. There are two ways to potentially profit from this capital cycle. The first is to invest in the mean reversion of returns to cost of capital levels. This requires the ability to time the entry and exit of capital within an industry, and the catalysts that might give rise to a change in returns on capital for example, the closure of factories, industry consolidation or bankruptcies. In addition, this requires renting the stock for a period of the capital cycle when the market is extrapolating forward financial performance that is likely to mean revert. For these two reasons, this approach is inconsistent with an investment program which has long-term business ownership as the cornerstone of its investment philosophy. The second approach is to identify companies whose supernormal profit potential is larger and more sustainable than the market believes. This is consistent with the recognition that patient temperament and capital are important sources of edge in executing a long-term investment strategy. Assessment of business quality involves gathering evidence that supports or refutes the existence of an economic moat, developing an understanding of the factors that have created this moat and whether the moat is likely to narrow or widen in the future. This involves a close examination of management's incentives and capital allocation ability. Management must be able to sensibly compare the value of various capital allocation choices. A rigid cash use ranking will not do. Dividends are value destructive if they are made in lieu of available positive NPV investments. Share repurchases are value destructive if shares are acquired at market quotations materially above intrinsic value. Asset growth shrinks per share business value if incremental cash returns are below the opportunity cost of capital. While an appreciation of frameworks such as Porter's Five Forces is useful in understanding competitive dynamics within various industries, it is important to safeguard against an overly prescriptive employment of these frameworks. Sometimes investors seem very keen to apply a ready-made label to the source of a company's moat for example, switching costs, network effects, intangible assets, cost advantages and so forth. Again, an understanding of these models and how they can give rise to unfair advantages is helpful, but that understanding is accompanied by the risk that investors thoughtlessly reach for the label that fits without really understanding from first principles how the company generates value for its owners. In addition, disruption across various industries is calling into question the relevance of previously accepted moat sources. See for example the current debate about brand value in the consumer staples space. Changing distribution models, from supermarket shelves to Amazon slash Alexa ordering mechanisms, are calling into question the equity of brands which serve to lower search costs. In addition, the delinearization of TV viewing has impaired consumer staples companies scale advantage in purchasing globally consumed TV advertising to reinforce brand advantage. This has resulted in the strong emergence of challenger brands such as Dollar Shave Club and Brew Dog. In retail the emergence of platform business models such as dropshipping and virtual inventory solutions are connecting vendors directly to consumers, obviating the requirements for retailer warehousing, lowering the barriers to entry in online retail by eroding the SKU variety advantages of incumbents. 
Having said this, I tend to be attracted to companies that enjoy genuinely interactive network effects. As the number of network participants increases arithmetically, the number of interactions between them increases geometrically, creating switching costs through the higher peruser utility of the platform. This can lead to winner-take-most outcomes, creating assets which are extremely difficult to replicate and, with appropriate managerial nurturing, can lead to tremendous economic value creation. Execution, making better decisions. Over my 13 years of financial analysis and investment research experience I have gained an insight into how the actors in the fund management industry behave according to the incentive frameworks that are in place at large institutional money managers. If there is one thing in which I have gained conviction over the years, it's that incentives matter. We, fund managers, should be in the business of creating, not transferring, value. In the pursuit of this goal investors' capacity to make good decisions is taken for granted. Making good decisions is not commonly considered a source of edge. Yet my vantage point gained from my experience on the sell side has given me an overview of the behaviors and incentives of actors representing the majority of the institutional money management industry. The experience serves as a reminder that the industry at large is not concerned with behavioral edge, it is therefore not consciously focused on making good decisions. As investors we are frequently encouraged to consider the edge that will allow us to outperform markets. The debate surrounds the trio of informational versus analytical versus behavioral source of competitive advantage. In my experience most investment firms are focused on the first two. This is partly due to a mandate to gather assets versus delivering superior investment returns. Undue weight is given to what looks good in a pitch book versus what works. In a world in which data has been rapidly democratized, a focus on informational edge can encourage excessive spend on travel-slash-corporate access-slash-over-the-top or misdirected primary research. Analytical edge may be possible, but a belief that we can more intelligently analyze information than our very smart and experienced peers can open the door to overconfidence and hubris. When we become overconfident, we become unreceptive to evidence that contradicts our opinions. It is important to develop strategies and systems to ensure we remain skeptical of our own views and attentive to the facts and evidence that may support or refute them. One such strategy is the recognition that behavioral edge is the most obvious opportunity to make better decisions and earn better returns over the long term. Behavioral edge is about creating a culture and environment that gives us the best chance of making optimal decisions. Optimal decisions are those that allow us to satisfy our goals of creating rather than transferring value, and of solving our partners' problems. It is predicated on a belief that we can tip the odds in our favor over time by repeatedly making good choices day in, day out. These decisions can relate to how we organize our day, where we focus our efforts, when to start and stop research, whether to invest, how much to invest, when and how much to sell, forming views of management, staffing, office location, investment partners, and designing fee structures. Not terribly contentious so far. Yet there are constraints which make actually making good decisions quite challenging. Most prominent amongst them the preponderance of short-term investment strategies driven by short-term capital and career risk. Fund managers feel they need to justify high fees with exotic strategies, proprietary and complex idea generation engines and creative investment theses. It isn't clear to me that these lead to better performance. The organization of roles and responsibilities within large asset managers can lead to overconfidence. Sector-focused analysts, focused on analytical rather than behavioral edge, have a small investment universe but are forced to pick winners and losers. This narrow focus can encourage excessive data collection and detailed financial forecasting, leading to overconfidence. The segregation of roles can impede rational decision-making too. Sector analysts may have done extensive research but portfolio managers have not. 
A portfolio manager operating within such an investment program never develops the conviction required to act optimally in the face of share price volatility because his setup encourages him to take the quoted price as a signal of value. The design and implementation of thoughtful incentive structures is crucial to being able to faithfully execute a genuine long-term investment strategy. Fee structures should avoid the undesirable outcome that investment managers can become rich by delivering below cost of capital returns to investment partners. Hurdles or investment rebates can help to achieve this aim. Investment managers without skin in the game face a major impediment to good decision-making, because it makes it harder to fight the asset-gathering imperative in pursuit of a returns-focused investment objective. Entrepreneurs often say that execution is more important than ideas. The same is true of investment strategies. The ability to execute a strategy is more important than the uniqueness or marketability of that strategy, for performance, not necessarily for gathering assets. So, it's important to think about how we can best execute our strategy. There are no points for difficulty or originality in this business. There are points for making decisions that lead to satisfactory long-term returns for our partners and clients. Diligent and thoughtful fundamental research on the handful of factors that matter is a prerequisite rather than a source of edge. But one should acknowledge the diminishing or even negative returns of more information. Industry incentives are inconsistent with epistemological humility. Pressure to sound smart is highlighted by the widespread practice of detailed financial forecasting. Phil Tetlock and James Montier have presented some pretty damning studies denouncing experts' ability to predict the future. Building detailed long-term financial forecasts is a low ROI exercise. If you need a detailed three-step DCF to find enough upside, pass. I focus on multiples of owner earnings, returns on capital, reinvestment rates and capital allocation. This approach is facilitated by a large opportunity set, which obviates the requirement to know everything. It allows me to focus on the very obvious gaps between price and value, and pass on the vast majority of mediocre investment opportunities. Case Study Jim Group PLC. In July 2017, I acquired shares of Jim Group, currently one of the largest holdings in the portfolio. Jim Group was founded by the current CEO in 2007 and is today the second largest low cost gym operator in the UK. The company has a coherent mission to help people improve their well being, whatever their fitness of financial starting point or location. The fact that consistently 30% of new members have never been a gym member before suggests this mission is being accomplished. The low-cost gym model has grown rapidly by addressing the historic barriers to gym membership, high membership cost and being tied into contracts. The proposition of high quality, low cost appears to be well received, gym's net promoter score is greater than 60. Gym can profitably offer average membership 60% below private sector averages due to higher utilization of site space. Materially lower labor intensity and customer acquisition costs are facilitated by online customer sign-up and management and pin entry systems. Market leaders Jim Group and Pure Jim enjoy scale advantages, evidenced by falling new site investment costs. Jim fit-out contractors are awarded contracts through more competitive tender processes, better terms are agreed with equipment suppliers and service providers such as cleaning. Marketing spend is better economics with a higher number of sites and members. The health and fitness club industry is fragmented, but there have been signs of retrenchment among mid-market private chains for example Fitness First has scaled back its portfolio in recent years and LA Fitness was acquired by Pure Gym. Mid-tier and premium competitors have lower margins than gym, this lowers their headroom for profitable price cuts. Low-cost gyms have been growing 50% PA but low-cost gym membership in the UK is still only 3%. In the US and Germany half of gyms are low-cost, and rising, accounting for the higher gym penetration rates in those markets. The low-cost segment has both taken share from the 
traditional segment and also grown the market, it's worth repeating that in every year since 2008. Greater than 30% of new gym members have not been a gym member before. Management has been opening 15 to 20 gyms per year, 15 to 20% of the current estate. These high reinvestment rates mean gyms reported financial screen poorly, with a P.E. ratio of 40x and a FCF yield of less than 2%, many value investors may prematurely write off gyms investment merits. However, owner earnings are pound 25 million, a 10% yield to the market cap when we purchase shares. Yet the estimated cash-on-cash returns on new gym openings are over 20%. So, for every pound of owner earnings invested, gym can create two pounds of value. This investment ticks all the boxes of high incremental returns on capital, high capital reinvestment rates, available to own at a modest multiple of current owner earnings. TripAdvisor Incorporated, an update. Since my last letter in June 2017 the shares of our biggest position, TripAdvisor, continued to decline, ending the year at around $34 per share. In November the company lost almost a quarter of its quoted value after lowering FY17 revenue growth guidance, stating that reigniting near-term hotel revenue growth has been more difficult than expected due to partner bid-downs, Priceline redirecting spend away from performance and towards brand advertising. I acquired more shares in December for the following reasons. Trip's customer proposition is continuing to strengthen. Trip has almost four times the traffic of Trivago, 455 million monthly unique visitors versus 120 million, but visitors are still increasing 17% per year. And these visitors are increasingly engaged, with reviews increasing 32% yai. Bid downs will not harm Trip's customer proposition, but it will hurt its profitability. The big picture remains the market is worth $1.3 trillion PA, 900x Trip's revenue, and Trip's influence continues to grow in this market. Trip has the largest selection of travel listings in the world, 2 million hotels and vacation rentals, 5.3 million restaurants and attractions. PCLN and Exp together have less than 15% of the global travel market. In addition, the broader onus on brand marketing that is evident in the third quarter results of all the travel companies may serve to accelerate the overall shift online. The reported margin decline overstated the financial impact of these bid downs on the core hotel business. Reported hotel EBITDA margins fell from 31% to 16% YI in 3Q17. The main drivers were the lower cost per clicks and trips $42 million expenditure on brand advertising. Assuming that incremental margins are 75% and return on advertising spend of 75% we get to an adjusted EBITDA margin in the mid-20s, i.e. 5-6 pp of dilution from PCLN's bid downs. I believe the most obvious opportunity for trip to improve monetization of traffic is not through higher cost per click but rather through higher conversion levels i.e. getting visitors to click on links rather than getting a higher price for those links. There are three drivers of revenue, traffic, conversion and CPC. Trivago's unit economics reflect a customer with much higher price comparison slash purchasing intent versus trip. TRVG has revenues roughly the same as trip's hotel business, yet its traffic is four times smaller than trip. This 4x monetization gap is the target of TRIP's website redesign and advertising campaign. The goal is to educate visitors that TRIP is a place to price compare. If we assume that TRIP has the same revenue per click and consider that TRIP is earning 40 cents revenue per hotel shopper, it implies that 70% of TRIP's visitors are there to review and post content, and do so without viewing a hotel page or a price comparison list for a particular hotel. Trip is clearly trying to lower this number by raising awareness of Trip's price comparison capability and doing so would be very positive for revenue per hotel shopper. Hotels are also attempting to build direct relationships with customers, Trip's instant book offering allows them to do this. 
they may therefore bid more for CPCs or pay more for IB partnerships. As TRIP continues to build its non-hotel offering, 80% of TRIP's content, bookable products, plus 30%, revenues plus 26%, 35% EBITDA margins, up from 12% a year ago, its dependence on OTAs will decline, currently circa 40% of revenues from Expand PCLN. For the same reason TRIP's traffic and user engagement should continue to grow, improving its viability as a lead generation partner versus Kayak, TRVG and Google. At this point I think we are paying close to zero for the hotel's business. If we value the non-hotel's business on a similar EBITDA multiple as that implied by the post-write-down priceline acquisition price paid for OpenTable, similar bookable content and revenue growth, trip lower, quickly growing margin versus OpenTable higher, steady margin, non-hotels is worth $3.5 billion. That would imply an EV of the hotel's business of less than $200 million. Given TRIP's quickly growing non-hotels margin, the same sales multiple slash higher EBITDA multiple may be more appropriate, implying a non-hotels valuation of $4.4 billion. That would imply an EV of TRIP's hotels business of negative $700 million. Takeout potential. It seems to me that one way that PCLN can satisfy its objective to own the customer relationship is to acquire TRIP. This is probably easier than trying to encourage TRIP's 500 million monthly unique visitors to go directly to bookings.com, which can offer them no price comparison. I don't think any brand campaign can engender such a level of consumer trust that customers stop comparing prices. Amazon has potentially achieved this but not through an advertising campaign. It could be the case that PCLN is flexing its muscles to hurt TRIP, driving down the stock price in order to more cheaply acquire the asset. This is potentially a risky strategy if the lower price attracts more bidders and the tactics make Malone slash Mafi less likely to accept an offer from PCLN. The change of control amendments in the filings and the absence of the buyback renewal are potential signals that an offer for trip could be made at some point. I think M&A potential and the implied negligible value for hotels, which increasingly is not the core business, mitigate substantially the risk of permanent capital loss for owners of TripAdvisor shares. This is not the same as near-term further quoted price declines. Should PCLN reaccelerate pressure driving CPCs another leg down this could cause the implied value of TRIP's hotel business to become negative. The likelihood that the private business value of the hotel's business is actually negative is remote. Mafi slash Malone are smart enough to take appropriate action if the hotel's business subsidy is too large to justify the synergy enjoyed by the non-hotel's business. As such, TRIP continues to be the largest position in the portfolio. Thank you for entrusting me with your capital. Yours sincerely. Mark. A letter to partners, June 2018, an error of judgment. Dear partners. In June I sold our equity interest in McCarthy and Stone, the UK retirement home builder. You should expect the disposal of portfolio holdings to be a relatively infrequent occurrence, given the long-term investment horizon of the investment strategy and my conviction in the merits of time arbitrage as a source of investment edge. Specifically, there are three reasons to sell shares. The margin of safety has declined, either through significant intrinsic value deterioration or share price appreciation to an extent that lowers a conservative appraisal of the investment's IRR to a level that is not materially higher than the opportunity cost of investing. There is a more lucrative investment opportunity, either within the current portfolio of afforded by a new investment candidate. I have made a mistake. I will make lots of these. Indeed, My investment process welcomes them as opportunities to learn. 
The documentation and filing of investment research provide a chronological journaling of decision-making over time that can be held to account as the facts unfold to support or refute the original hypothesis. Treading the fine line between dogma and conviction is one of the most difficult challenges in investment management. But exercising sound judgment is one of most important determinants of long-term investment outperformance. Material share price underperformance or new negative fundamental information will therefore trigger a reappraisal of investment theses. After which comes an important decision. Average down, exploiting the market's volatility to lower the average cost of our ownership of a great business? Or recognize the flaws in our original analysis, own up to our misjudgment and use the experience as a case study to improve future decision-making? I think that McCarthy and Stone falls into the third category. MCs is the largest retirement house builder in the UK. The company buys land, secures planning consent, builds, sells and manages housing developments specifically designed for retirees. My investment thesis was that MCs is a dominant niche home builder that was well positioned to benefit from an aging population and structural UK housing undersupply. I expected high earnings reinvestment rates to compound MCs's intrinsic value over a long period of time. At the same time, I viewed the risk of intrinsic value impairment as modest due to my assessment that MCs had low business risk, was conservatively capitalized and traded at a valuation that did not reflect this positive risk-reward skew. Taking these in turn. Business risk. In MCs's 40-year operating history, it has enjoyed a dominant position within a largely uncontested niche. Major home builders have tried and failed to enter this market. MCs is the dominant provider of owner-occupied retirement housing in the UK with 70% market share. Private competitors are much smaller, regional operators. A significant portion of retirement housing is publicly owned and takes the form of sheltered housing, owned by local authorities, the majority of which was built 50 to 60 years ago. Apartment design is standardized, MCs's scale and ability to utilize repeatable processes is a cost advantage. MCs also enjoys planning advantages due to the social value of its products. MCs acquires sites through conditional purchase contracts, mainly conditional on the granting of planning consent. In many cases contracts will include commercial viability clauses which gives MCs the flexibility to cancel purchases for projects which become uneconomic. In market downturns, MCs can exit conditional contracts and sell land to non-residential interests such as supermarkets and other commercial interests, lowering development risk. Management incentives are long-term and aligned with equity owners. Return on capital. Employed is a feature of the company's three-year vesting tip. Balance sheet risk. MCs finances its operations from operating cash flow. Shareholder equity represents 90% of long-term capital. Financial gearing has dramatically reduced since the financial crisis and a low level of operating leverage complements the prudent capital structure of the business. Valuation risk. When I acquired shares MCs's quoted enterprise value was barely higher than the company's invested capital. In my view this made little sense for a business generating 20% return on existing capital employed and substantial opportunity to reinvest operating cash flows into the development of more homes for a long time. MC's estimates that almost 1 million households are in the optimal bracket of being 75 plus, living alone slash with a spouse, and having high housing wealth. Yet only 140k units have been built to date in the UK. This circa 800k shortfall is large in the context of the market leader's targeted production of 3k PA. In June 2018 management issued a press release stating that there had been a noticeable decline in reservation rates due to a slower secondary market and a softening in pricing, particularly in the southeast. Due to a slower than expected spring selling season operating profit for FY18 is expected to be £65 to £80 million. 
Previously management stated it was comfortable with analyst PBT range of £91 to £108 million. This is a significant adjustment to make over a two-month period. The forward order book is still growing plus 10%, but this has slowed from plus 13% two months ago. Essentially, customers have responded to the declining values of their existing homes by tempering their interest in purchasing retirement housing. This is likely to affect MCs more than mainstream home builders as MCs' customers are typically trading down, so the cash value they can extract for their existing home diminishes. My thesis has been that in a worst-case scenario, one in which the company earns no freehold reversionary income due to the government's ground rent ban, MCs could earn 11% after tax ROTC. Being able to purchase the business for its invested capital therefore would be an important safeguard against permeant capital loss. Several developments challenge this thesis. The speed with which the business has deteriorated may mean that historic returns are not an appropriate starting point. I want to avoid at all costs buying an average business in favorable business conditions, mistaking it for a high-quality business. The June release highlighted that the company's profitability is influenced by external factors to a greater degree than previously assumed. The chairman stated that he expects the business to generate mid-teens rosé over the next year, and the CFO confirmed this included FRI income. Removing C.25 million of FRI income on 70 million pounds of operating profits, 35%, would lower this pre-tax rosé to less than 10%, or less than 8% after tax. This would imply the market is expecting no material deterioration nor improvement from here. There is yet another major personnel change as the CEO follows the previous CFO and chairman out the door. The chairman hinted on the call that a potential future business model change, US-Australia type retirement village options, will be part of the company's long-term considerations. So where did I go wrong? In a nutshell, I believe I underestimated the business risk associated with McCarthy and Stone. I believe that, one, the interrogation of MCs's financial track record over a favorable business environment, and, two, my underestimation of the capacity for populist government policies to materially impair MCs's economic prospects, caused me to overestimate the quality of this business. As such, my estimate of the incremental returns that MCs could sustainably enjoy was too high. In addition to making mistakes relating to disaggregating business quality from favorable economic conditions, I feel I gave too much credence to management expectations given their strong track record of performance within this historic industry environment. This is especially frustrating, as I have written previously about the role of corporate access in a thoughtful investment process and the need to safeguard against management sales pitches. I will make more investment mistakes over the years. You can depend on that. You can also depend on me to write about these errors of analysis or judgment transparently, and, I hope, to learn from them to satisfactorily compound your capital over the long term. Thank you for entrusting me with your capital. Yours sincerely. Mark.